0: There is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Mortals put an end to the darkness. They search out the farthest recesses for ore in the blackest darkness. Far from human dwellings they cut a shaft. In places untouched by human feet. Far from other people they dangle and sway. The earth from which food comes is transformed below as by fire. Lapis lazuli comes from its rocks and its dust contains nuggets of gold. No bird of prey knows that hidden path. No falcon's eye has seen it. Proud beasts do not set foot on it and no lion prowls there. People assault the flinty rock with their hands and lay bare the roots of the mountains. They tunnel through the rock, their eyes see all its treasures. They search the sources of the rivers and bring hidden things to light. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? No mortal comprehends its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. The sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can can its price be weighed out in silver. It cannot be bought with the gold of Ophir, with precious onyx or lapis lazuli. Neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels of gold. Coral and jasper are not worthy of mention. The price of wisdom is beyond rubies. The topaz of Cush cannot compare with it, It cannot be bought with pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds in the sky. Destruction and death say only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells, for he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. And he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. The second reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen, rather than than in what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who has no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Thanks, Tiffany. Um, so just in case that wasn't clear before we do meet here this Sunday even if it's post Rivendell secondly it's worth saying also that um, uh, Emma Collett will be joining us on staff on Tuesday full time and she'll be a co-congregational pastor here at 6pm so we're going to welcome her which we're excited by and thirdly I think if we have time we will have two or three questions after this message so if any question pops up in your mind Write it down, and uh, we'll give you the microphone, and it will get to the microphone, and, uh, and, um, and uh, we'll see, see how we go. Okay, you ready? Are you sure? <laughs> you Anglicans. <laughs> yes, you are. Let's pray. Our Father, inspire us now with a deep, appropriate fear of you, a fear that uplifts us in grace, a fear that motivates us, because we know who is Lord a fear appropriate to who you are as God, overall, our Creator. Also, because of what you've done through Christ our Lord, to this end, teach us to fear you, to fear Christ, and to shun evil. We pray this in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, my text today is one verse from an ancient text about wisdom, written, what, 3,000 years ago? And yet, is profoundly for us today... Uh, and it's also a door to the gospel of life. And it's Job 28, verse 28 on page 8, not planned. And God said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that's wisdom, a posture towards Him. And a reaction, too, to shun evil is understanding. God said to the human race and to us here tonight in the power of God's Spirit, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. In Proverbs, the beginning of wisdom. And to shun evil, a reaction to evil, that's true understanding. So this is a message about the fear of the Lord, how the fear of the Lord can give you life and teach you how to live well. It's also an introduction uh, to the year, our topic for 2020, the teaching topic. Uh, And as a subset of the teaching topic of wisdom, In 2020, we're going to look closely at the fear of the Lord in a particular series later. So there'll be questions raised here, and I'm hoping to answer them a little bit more deeply, or hoping to answer them in a series later on. So we're concluding a three-week series. The chapter fits into three neat sections tonight. Uh, It leads to Rivendell next weekend, uh, which is about wisdom. And uh, so we're mining for wisdom in 2020. And it begins with, surprise, surprise, the fear of the Lord. In the first section of the chapter, verses 1 to 12, Job's narrator, perhaps, says that when people find a precious metal, any precious metal, hidden in the ground, that's its connection to wisdom, its hiddenness, well, uh, they dig, really, they discover, they innovate, they overcome fears. I understand it's a hot topic now, but let's just live in the context of the original passage, uh, humans do what they need to do to get to the precious thing. Verses 12 to 19 tells you that the chapter's not really about mining. Of course, we're not mining for gold. In the end, we're mining for wisdom or hidden wisdom. But if we wanted to mine for wisdom, where will we go? A question asked in verse 12 and then again effectively repeated in verse 20. And so in... 2020, we are mining for wisdom. The plan is to attack the problems, one by one, which, if I can put it this way in verse 9, is to attack the flinty rock with our hands, verse 9. Another way of saying that is we're going to go for it. I want to go for it. Um, We want to get below to the essence of things, verse 9, to lay bare the roots of the mountains. I get that Job's talking about mining here, but I like the idea of wisdom, to, to get underneath To find wise paths through complex issues, verse 10, want to tunnel through the rock and to bring to light hidden things. To do all this to seek the most precious thing, which is wisdom. Again, I speak now, not as the wise one here, uh, far from it. Uh, I want to prove a little bit to you tonight, not by telling you how foolish I am or have been, uh, but rather I want to talk about what it means to be a finite human. I live in that space, so do you. Uh, but my task here, as is the case every week, is to point you to the wise one, to Jesus. Because for wisdom in the end will be out, about discovering Jesus or rather having him discover you. So the question this week is the same as last week. Uh, for Verse 20 follows verse 12 to 19. The question's asked in verse 12, but it's not answered, as we said last week. The whole chapter's poetry, it builds momentum towards an answer. Where does wisdom come from? You know, where would you go if you wanted to find it? Where does understanding dwell? Where's its home, so I can knock on the door? See the poetry there? And the answer we discover in verses 20 through 28 is that wisdom comes from God, ultimately. Uh, as a source... And uh, there are nuggets of wisdom everywhere on earth, and everybody knows that's true. Is there people you identify as a wise person? Uh, You know, I'll embarrass him. I identify Ray Smith as a wise person, a nugget, got some nods there. Um, There are nuggets of wisdom, nuggets of gold, if I can put it everywhere, and they're precious. We know it. But wisdom has only one source, uh, and that's God. So Tremper Longman says this in his commentary, wisdom begins not in accumulating facts, but with a relationship with God. When my kids started school, the registration person said, what do you want for the education of your child? And I'm like, I hadn't thought about it, you know. And she's looking for a box to tick, you know, do you want to socialize, learn more, get into university? And I said, it's going to sound weird, but I'm a minister and I just, I want my kid to fear God, and live a life of service. And she's like, there's no box to tick. There's no box to tick. I think she wrote it down. Thought I was weird. Four questions, and these questions are on page 10 as an outline. Where does the wisdom come from? That's a great question. Uh, Four things to say. Why it's an important question. I want to talk about the context of Job's suffering. Why only a God can claim it are not any human or a group of humans. And then why only God can claim it. That's from verses 23 to 27. There are other claimants. Who are they? I'm going to offer a few suggestions. There, I mean, there are many, but I'll offer a few suggestions. And fourthly, why the simple answer in verse 28 is both profound and practical, and maybe that will lead to a series later on. Firstly, why the question about where wisdom comes from is important. So far in the series, I've not really placed this chapter in context. Uh, The context of Job 28 is Job, the life of Job. And the book of Job is an ancient book and it's about handling suffering and not just any handling of suffering. I mean, you could read a book which says, you know, stiff up a lip, charge forward. You could read another book on handling suffering that says, you know, bite the bullet, make it happen. Job is particularly about it's about God and how you about how you handle suffering if you believe in a good God, if you follow a good God and you can't see why you are suffering the way you are. There are lots of claims to wisdom throughout the book. Lots of dialogue. uh, Lots of wise, wise comments. Job's friends are interesting. Eliphaz Bildad and Zophar. If you have kids, I dare you to name a child one of those three names. They're really great at the beginning, um, pastorally. They sit with their friend for seven days and say nothing. And then they proceed to pronounce wisdom. And in the end, they don't know how to shut up. They think they're wise. They think they can draw the necessary line between Job's suffering uh, and, and his sin and um, the way they speak, you know, it's now my turn, it's now my turn, the way they speak, you'd think that wisdom resided in them. Uh, In chapter 12, verse 2, Job, hurting, I think, gets a little sarcastic. He, He does the burn. He says, doubtless, you are the people who matter. You know, you're the only ones, he says, and wisdom will die with you. So the question remains... Uh, throughout the book and is stated in chapter 28 where wisdom can be found probably probably by a narrator sort of doesn't fit in the dialogue of, of Job but it sits in the middle of the, the book uh, perhaps giving the reader of Job a little break a little uh, respite and an insight that links chapters 1 and 2 to the final chapters when God turns up he reveals himself And so, in chapter 28, you get the question, where does wisdom come from? It's not in the friends. Where does understanding dwell? It's not there in in Job's dust and ashes. Or it doesn't appear to be. Now, this is important because suffering is inevitable. You and I will suffer if we haven't already or we aren't currently. And when we do, our reaction to suffering will matter. Will we, because of suffering, become wiser or more foolish? Will we become more loving or more bitter or judgmental? Will we become kinder or crueler? Because it could go either way. In Romans 8, Paul says, God uses everything to make us more like Christ, um, for those who love him, but uh, there are others that will experience suffering and, I don't know, put the boot into their faith. And, you know, sort of understandably so. I'm not trying to, you know, there'll there'll be some reason. When they give you the reasons, you'll say, you know, you you won't want them to have done it, but there'll be some reasonable understanding in your mind why they reacted the way they have. But Job provides us with an alternative to giving God the boot. Job is, of course, a book for adults. It's not easy, and it's not sugar-coated. Job, we're told, in chapters 1 and 2, God says it, he's a man who fears God and sons evil. That's in chapter 1, verse 1. He loves God, and yet, over a, a day, and then over time, he loses everything. The Satan, right, the accuser, takes it all away from him, including his family. It's gobsmacking and gut-wrenching. And so Job sits down in his dust and ashes, struggling to process it all, because from his perspective, there's no rhyme or reason, no method in the madness. It's like all the pieces of the puzzle are on the table, and he just can't put them together. Have you ever felt like that? So, Job, throughout the book, wants to have it out with God. It's like, show me how the puzzle works. Puzzle doesn't work. And in the end, jo- Job wants a showdown with God, or rather, he wants God to show up. Oh, that he would show up and, and uh, give me, write down his indictment against me, and surely I'll wear it like a crown, like a, a, prince, a prince. I will approach him. So throughout the book, Job comes close to the edge, understandably. He's hurting. He speaks honestly and boldly like half the psalmists do. And God listens, doesn't swat him down, such is our God. I believe Job 38 to 42, all the questions that Job, the God peppers Job when he does turn up, are both at the same time place, playful and place-putting. They are both gravitas, they weigh him down, but also levitas, they lift him up. But here's the thing you need to know. Job starts off, chapter 1, verse 1, fearing God and shunning evil, and he ends up the same way. In chapter 1, we get a glimpse into the throne room of God, where God says to the Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Look down. He is a man who fears God and shuns evil, which will be picked up in chapter 28. But at the end of all the suffering, after all the dialogue, after all the wisdom, Job remains standing. He remains my servant. He doesn't get an answer to why he's suffering. He doesn't get information. Explanation. But he learns, perhaps in new ways, to do what he's always done, a posture towards God, he fears him, and a reaction to evil, he shuns evil. You know, um, he grows, no doubt, for sure, but suffering doesn't draw him away from God, doesn't make him belittle God, and doesn't make his heart hard. It's the same thing with Jesus Christ, who suffered, the true and better Job, who is our wisdom. This is partly why the cross of Jesus Christ is the power and wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2. We humans hold our heads high. We think that wisdom is knowledge. Paul says, where is the philosopher of this age? Where's the wise one? God gives us a posture towards him. He humbles our proud hearts before he lifts us up and he says to you and to me, the fear of the Lord. That's what wisdom is. You want to know what wisdom is? It's the fear of the Lord. And if you want to know what understanding is... It's a reaction to evil, it's to shut it down. So if you're suffering, or you do in 2020, it won't be easy, but it will be important to know your place before a beautiful, holy and loving God. Two, why only a God, indeed only God, can claim it. The friends of Job stumble in the dark. They offer Job all sorts of advice. They attack the flinty rock with their hands, but they fail to lay bare the mountains. They certainly don't tunnel through the rock and they don't bring to light the hidden things. Why? They can't. They can't. They weren't there. In the throne room, they they don't have God's view of the lot They weren't there as the reader was invited in to where Satan says to God, the only reason that Job loves you, the only reason that anyone loves you, is that you put a hedge around them. The only reason Job fears you is that he gets something from it, material wealth or power or a sense of community or whatever it is. Something they want. Uh, But if you take the hedge away, then he'll do what everybody does. He'll curse you, God, and he'll live for himself become focused on self. Now, the friends are wrong about Job. He doesn't curse God. He wants an answer, like you want an answer. Job, in many ways, attacks the flinty rock with his hands. All his words are like, show me, God, show me. But in the end, wisdom will come only because God reveals it. And it won't be the accumulation of knowledge, but... The revelation of a correct posture towards God, and God has to show up to to give that to him. The Word has to become flesh for Job. God has tunnelled. God tunnels through the rock to Job in the same way that Jesus tunnels through the rock of sin to find us. God is the only source of wisdom. Remember that quote from Soren Kierkegaard from last week: "Every lake has a source that may be hidden." If there's no source, there's no lake. If there's no wisdom from God, there's no wisdom on earth. But why is there wisdom on earth, says Job? Why do we care about being wise anyway? We could just care about being strong or fit, but most of us want to be wise in any given moment. The reason we want to be wise is because of God. We're made in His image. Job 28 verse 23, God understands the way to wisdom, and he alone knows where it dwells. This section here, 23 to 27, is poetry. It's profound. In verses 25 to 27, God is like a craftsman who, at the creation of the world, looks at wisdom and the praises it, verse 27. Um, like a craftsman who makes a piece of furniture. God sits down in wisdom. He confirms it and tested it. God made wisdom, and He alone is its source. Job even gives you the two reasons why He's the source. One, He sees it all. Two, He created it all. He sees it all, that's in verse 24. For God views the ends of the earth, He sees the lot, He sees the whole puzzle, He sees everything under the heavens. And you don't, you see. None of us do. No parliament does. No board does. No university professor does. No pastor does. God alone knows A to Z. If I can use the alphabet language, we only know a part of the story. He sees it all. If I can put it this way, we know Q to T. Sometimes I feel like I know Q to S. (laughs) Some of you are a bit smarter or wiser than me, and you know D to L. Probably not. Maybe you know a little bit more than I do. But God knows A to Z. He sees it all. And secondly, He's the Creator. Anticipating the final chapters of Job, we read this awesome truth that when God created the world, wisdom was there. Verse 25, when he established the force of the wind, did you do that? No. When he measured out the waters, were you there? No. When he made a decree for the rain and cut a path of a thunderstorm, then God looked at wisdom. God appraised it. God confirmed it. And God tested it. And God said to the human race, it's a posture towards me, the fear of the Lord. That's wisdom. And a reaction to evil, to shun evil, that's understanding. Thirdly, who are the other claimants? And there are other claimants to wisdom. In the whole book of Job, there are other claimants to wisdom, like the friends. In chapter 28, there's other claimants to wisdom, but each says in a poetic way, not me, you've come to the wrong place. You can look anywhere on earth, but you won't find the source of wisdom. You'll find the lake, you'll find nuggets, you won't find the source. You say, perhaps if I bottom." Get to the bottom of the ocean or the highest mountain. In verse 14, the deep says, it's poetry, right? The deep says, it's not with me. Uh, The sea says, it is not with me. You can see um, some Disney moment here where, you know, some character travels to the depths of the sea to find wisdom. And when he gets there, it's like, "Mm, not here, not here. So wisdom is not found in gurus. It's not found in self-help experts. It's not found in any master sensei no pastor by the way will give it to you not the complete picture only god has a complete picture in verse 21 another claimant it's hidden from every eye of every living thing concealed even from the birds of the sky i love verse 22 death and destruction say only a rumor of wisdom has reached our ears i love that by the way death and destruction are personified here, as they are in one Corinthians fifteen. Where are death is your victory, see, where are death is your sting. Here they're personified, and you think the thing you fear—destruction, decay, disorder, and death itself—you fear me, right? Oh, yes, you do, and that much, and that makes you want to bow down before death and find the elixir of life, right? Death and destruction say, only a rumor of wisdom have reached our ears. Don't gather your heart and your posture and revolve around your fears. No point in doing that. We don't hold the source of wisdom, say, death and destruction. I do believe that you'll find nuggets of wisdom everywhere. I really do believe that. The last two weeks I've had to go at university, but I love university, you know, higher education, tertiary degrees, pay for that. I'm a big fan, big fan. I also believe in parliamentary democracy, and I believe that parliamentary democracy will produce more wisdom than a junta or a dictatorship. That's something to thank God for on Australia Day. We have a parliamentary democracy, not everybody does. There's more wisdom in a parliamentary democracy. I know you say, really? Look at what they're doing. Really? But there is more than one dictator, especially, you know, you get one from the army and really, what do they know about how to tax and distribute, how to... You know, what do you... You want to get a group of people together. I mean, same thing with boards. I believe in boards. A board of an organisation will produce more wisdom around a table than one person who makes all the decisions without the help of others. I believe in boards. But wisdom is not found or sourced in parliamentary democracy or in boards, even though we need them. I certainly believe in seeking help from experts and by being guided by people who know stuff that I don't know. But I believe all these things not because wisdom resides in them, not because it's sourced in them. Parliaments, boards, advisers make wrong decisions, and they really do, just less likely to with more people. In the end, parliaments, boards and experts tell us that we're frail on our own, we're sinful even, we'll gather things to ourselves. We only know Q to T. And when we have all the decisions, we'll we'll often make decisions that tend to favour ourselves. In the end, there is a God. And he sees it all. And so wisdom will be found pressing into him together, us, plus those who've gone before us, those who've written books, pressing into the one who created the world and sees it all. J.A. Moitier, in his commentary, says that therefore we need to look at the world in a different way. He writes God sees everything under the heavens, whereas we see only in part Q to T. There is more to Job's predicament than Job himself will ever know, even though the reader is let in on chapters 1 and 2. But you won't when you suffer. What is needed, writes Mortier, is a new beginning to our knowledge, a new beginning to our knowledge, to start not from our own experience of misery like Job. That's easy, it's called a pity party nor from our own mystical knowledge like Eliphaz, don't start there, our own experience, nor even from our understanding of theological tradition like Bildad, nor from our own inflated common sense like Zophar, true wisdom is accessible to God alone, which means that it can come only from him alone and therefore your posture towards him will matter. Fear him and shun evil. Find out what, fears, what uh, the will of the Lord is, says Ephesians 5, verse 10, and do it. India we'll need a truckload of grace and forgiveness and we'll need to become a new creation. Fourth and finally, why the simple answer in verse 28 is both profound and practical. So these your answer, by the way. Fear God, posture, shun evil, a reaction. The Bible speaks a lot about the fear of the Lord, and it's not the same thing as uh, you know, fear of walking at night and having someone attack you. It's much more of a, an awe, a reverence, an appropriateness, a, an I know my place before loving a holy God who sees and created it all. And so in Deuteronomy, the fear of God and love for God go hand in hand. Read Deuteronomy. Fear of God, love of God, hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. In fact, obedience to God without fear is like a, a body without a soul or a glove without a hand in it. It has no backbone, no life in it. In the end, it becomes useless and meaningless. Tim Keller has this nice illustration where he says, he and his wife like tea in the morning, and they have a teacup set that's fairly sort of old and a bit rusted, and they can knock it around a little bit, which they do, and uh, lose a cup, it's okay. But he says, imagine if somebody came in who was an expert in antiquities and says, I can tell you a little bit about that cup. It's got a seal on the bottom. And I happen to know it's 150 years old and it belonged to the household of Queen Victoria. Keller says, at that point, of course, I'm going to approach the cup differently, not with an ordinariness like we're equals and it doesn't really matter what happens, but rather with, a, with an appropriate fear, and awe. I'll treat it differently. I might put it away and bring it out on special occasions and tell people about it. I will treat it differently. It turns out that it's not just obedience that God wants, but obedience that springs from a fear, an inner kind of healthy, powerful fear of God, an awe where you discover your place before him. There is, of course, a fear that leads to love and then a perfect love that drives out all other fears. That's what the Apostle John says in 1 John 4 verse 18. Not contradicting the message to fear God, to fear Christ. John says, for those who know the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's no fear in love, but there is a perfect love that drives out these other fears because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And perhaps the best way to explain that verse is to say that there is a fear that leads to love and you gather a love that drives out all other fears. This is not reductionism. I fear God. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's a door to a life lived. The first step, square one in a quest for meaningful existence. Let me conclude. Why is it practical? Well, if you're a person sitting here today and you think you don't need God, maybe just some Christian values, this will jolt you out of your complacency. If you don't think you need Christ, then... Think again, even Jesus says this. This is Jesus, not me. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. They're not the ones to be afraid of. Jesus says, I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing, the killing of the body, has the power to throw you into hell. Jesus said that. Yes, I tell you, fear him. This is a fear that should lead to repentance. Tonight becoming a Christian and fearing Christ. But it is a fear that leads to love. Second reason, it's practical. If you thought that you were wiser than you are, this observation tonight will show you a truth about yourself. Proverbs 3, verse 7, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. Seriously, you only know Q to T. This is a fear that leads to humility. Humility. What about if you find yourself a judgmental person, a person pretty judgy towards others? Perhaps you look down on other people. This fear will lead you not to do so. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Um, So he says, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We know that we're the ones who are going to be judged uh, but we also know the grace and mercy of God and since this is true since we're constrained by the love of God we persuade others in fact we regard no one anymore from a worldly point of view and if it's sort of worldly to be judgy about others then we give it up in fact we uh, see people as God sees them loved and needing salvation this is a humility that would lead to evangelism Perhaps if you fear others or fear powers or fear the night or fear your boss or fear your future, there's steps that you can take, of course, to mitigate against those fears, wise ones. We can talk about them in the future. But I do believe that there is one fear that drives out all other fears, not uh, wise steps in a dark and dangerous world, notwithstanding. There is one fear that drives out all other fears. I love what Jeremiah says in chapter 5, verse 22, should you not Fear me, declares the Lord. Should you not tremble in my presence? What about if you think you're invisible? Death is not round the corner. Psalm 90. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I gain a heart of wisdom if I number my days. It's a fear that leads to humility. Or maybe you think you're going to do whatever the hell you want and whenever you want to do it. It's a moment in Acts when uh, the apostles say to a group, I could see no fear of God in your eyes, and I thought to myself, there's no reason why you can't attack us in this moment. You don't believe there's a judgment to come. That lovely verse in Isaiah when God says, this is the one I esteem, the one who doesn't just make it up as they go along and do what they want to do, but the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. In Star Wars, Luke says to Yoda, I'm not afraid. And Yoda says uh, to him, oh, you will be, you will be. I love what's said in Narnia when uh, Lucy finds out that Aslan is a lion. It's a lion, is he safe? No, of, co- of course not. He's not safe. But he's good, I tell you, he's good. I wonder if deep down many of us have imagined ourselves as greater than God or Perhaps we think we can tame God, that he would sit on my lap and make me feel better, or that I can tell him my word counts over his. Here's the truth. There is a fear that leads to love, and there is a love that banishes fears. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, we stand in awe of you, and we say to you now, you are God and I'm not. I am but dust looking for a resurrection. I am a sinner looking for salvation. I'm a person who's wronged others seeking forgiveness. I'm a person who's broken, being wanting to be put back together. I'm a person who is diseased, looking for healing. A person who is bloodied and looking for bandages, looking for binding a person without peace looking for the peace of the Lord which surpasses all understanding. Father, may we drink deeply of the wisdom that comes from your word this year. And may we fear Jesus Christ, who in dying and rising causes us to live in an appropriate fear that takes away all other fears. May this be true for us tonight and each night, for Christ's sake. Amen.